Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to Nerd Wallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, Sakuya here. And before things started here with the podcast, I just wanted to talk to you all for a moment and thank you for listening. If you are looking for bonus episodes of the podcast as well as an ad-free experience, then please do go and check out my Patreon. If you only subscribe for $1 a month, then that is going to give you a bonus episode that is going to release every Friday on Patreon. In addition to that, you're going to get early access for all releases here of the podcast. And simultaneously, depending on what level you become of the patron, there are different bonuses, such as $5, which that allows you to get a video request that you will have made every single month. Anyway, thank you all here for listening, and I hope you have a good rest of your day. Enjoy whatever it is that the episode that you're listening to is now. Bye, guys. Hello, everyone. Stakuya here. And I'm Gabby. And welcome back to the podcast, my hoes. Ah, oh, man. You know, we're, we're back at this once again, doing a lot of writing and working. It, it's, been, it's been fun. It's been fun. But also, at the same time, there's been so much stuff that we are working on. Okay, so we got numerous ideas from all the varying things to release, whether it is the stuff for the podcast exclusives, whether it is all the different characters and figures that you all wanted to cover here for, well, just the general podcast. We've gotten a lot of suggestions. And one of the ones in here was Ibrahim the Mad. And so I knew from when we were covering things here before, right? It's like, okay, okay, if we're going to be covering two crazy figures, John the Twelfth, and then, like, if we're going to be covering that, then we also got to cover Ibrahim the Mad. Because, okay, Gabby, do you have any idea just how many rulers in history have been what we would call, um, What's the word? Unstable? You can find one in current history. I mean... <laughs> oh, shoot. For those of you who don't uh, realize this, uh, we are recording this on February... Not February, it's now March. Yeah, it's March 1st, 2022. And, uh, yeah, there's currently a bit of a war going on in Ukraine because uh, Putin decided that he wanted to put his shit into everyone else. That was a pun. Bad one. But you, yeah, 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 I know. Throwing tomatoes. <laughs> but yeah, that's the gist of what's going on there. But while we would describe these people as crazy, they're not necessarily mad, right? They're not utterly insane. Like, because again, we've talked about all different kinds of people in history and all the crazy stuff they did. But I mean, sometimes this crazy is amazing stuff. Sometimes it just means that it's awful. And sometimes that stuff is quite literally crazy like, okay, as I said, there have been a lot of rulers all around the world that have earned the epithet of the mad or something that carried a similar connotation, I guess you could say. And if, for those of you who don't know what I'm saying, when I say epithet, so when we say Charles the Great, Ibrahim the Mad, Suleiman the Magnificent, the epithet... Is, the 
talks a lot. I don't know. Yeah. Gabby, Secretary the Gabby. The term that you are looking for is loquacious or gregarious. Really? You know, loquacious quite literally just means talkative. And um, when you're looking at gregarious, that's like an orator talking, talking to the point that they are a great speaker to convince people. I'm guessing you did really well on the SAT. Yes, I did. Well, I mean, actually, I didn't take the SAT. I took the uh, ACT. Either way, you're a nerd. Yeah, basically. <laughs> but as I said, he's my favorite. But before we're going to start, I'm going to tell you that when I say favorite, I am not saying that this guy was awesome because people tend to skew that when I talk about things as badasses. My favorite in this is just his story is insane. But in order to kind of understand that story, we got we got to do a little bit of the back story, I guess. Okay, so Ibrahim, this guy, he was born in Istanbul, which is that was Constantinople before it became Istanbul when it was conquered by the Ottomans on the 6th of November, 1650. And so he was Ibrahim the first as he later came to be known. Now, he reigned as the sultan of the Ottoman Empire from 1640 to 1648. And he was born to Sultan Ahmed I and Kulsum Sultan, who his mother was an ethnic Greek. Originally, her, her name was Anastasia, and she had been kidnapped from her family, made a concubine, and she later became the legal wife of the Sultan, which that's a whole other thing. We've covered harems and different things here before. It, it's a really fascinating political structure for how all that worked, but th that's the context. So when Sultan Ahmed died from typhus on November of 1617, Kulsim was only 28 years old, and at the time, she had borne him five sons. Now, mind you, G Gabby, you're, you're 26. You're going to be 27 here this year, and you've had one daughter. Now, imagine five sons. It's not even mentioning the number of daughters, just five sons. Could not be me. Literally could not be me. Oh, yeah. And even if it could, would not be me. <laughs> so... While he was a son, as we said, there's others. So his younger brother of, uh, not, not Kolsim, not Istan, uh, not, wait, what am I saying for it here? Ibrahim. God, there's a lot of names in here that are going to kind of blend together, so I apologize. But Mustafa was the little brother of Ibrahim's father, right? So he was the little brother of Ahmed I. He took the throne, and when this happened, Kolsim and Ibrahim were sent to into the old palace, which was away from the Tokapi palace or the Topkapi palace, which that is the, that is the palace of the Ottomans. But after a very short rule, Mustafa was deposed by a palace faction in favor of his oldest nephew, Osman II, whose mother was Mafiruz, who was another wife of Sultan Ahmed. But this guy, Osman, was then assassinated in 1622 by the Janissaries, which if you don't know what that is, that's this elite infantry unit that really is the infantry. It's, it's, it's the warriors that helped to build and make the Ottoman Empire what it was. Like, you can't have the Ottoman Empire without the Janissaries. That's like saying Rome without the Legionnaires. So born in Istanbul on the 6th of November, 1650, Ibrahim I, who later became known as Ibrahim the Mad, reigned as sultan of the Ottoman Empire from 1640 to 1648. He was born to Sultan Ahmed I and the Kulsim Sultan, who is his mother, and she was actually an ethnic Greek, originally named Anastasia, or Anastasia, and she was initially kidnapped from her family before being made a concubine, and later became the legal wife of the Sultan. 
Now, when Sultan Ahmed died from typhus in November of 1617, Colson was only 28 years old, and yet by that time had borne him five sons. Now, Gabby, Gabby, I want you to think about that for a second here, right? She was 28 years old, you're 26, about to be 27, and she has already borne him five sons. It's not even talking about daughters. I don't know if she had any daughters, but I'm going to imagine that she didn't just crank out five boys. Um, some people do. Uh, some yeah. Some people do. Like, not you, but some people. Why, 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 did you, why, why would you have to point out me? We've had one, we had one kid. Yeah, and like, as we see, obviously not you. We have a daughter. I don't know what that's supposed to mean for me, but all right, all right, fine. So despite the fact that he had many sons, his younger brother, Mustafa I, is the one that took the throne because there weren't any kids that were of age. I mean, they're kids. Like, they literally were not of age to take the throne. But after a short rule, Mustafa was deposed by a palace faction in favor of his oldest nephew, Osman II, whose mother was Mafiruz, who was another wife, of Sultan Ahmed. But as that happened, Osman was assassinated in 1622 by the Janissaries, which the Janissaries, if you don't know what that is, that's an elite infantry unit. Uh, it's, how should I put this? The Janissaries are to the Ottomans as the legionnaires were to the Romans. It, it, they're synonymous. Like that, that's just how it worked. And so Mustafa was restored to the throne and held it for only one year when Murad IV, the 11-year-old son of Ahmed and Kulsim, was enthroned on the 10th of September, 1623. And after his succession, Kulsim came back to the Tokapi Palace as the Valide Sultan, which that is the mother of the Sultan. That Literally, it's the one of the most powerful, no, not the most, it is, it is the most powerful position in the harem. And like, we could go way more in depth about harem politics, but wait, did we do an episode on that? On YouTube. Oh, wait, that was for YouTube. Oh, yes. Okay. So if you all are listening to this right now, go check out my YouTube channel. It's also Stakuyi. Same thing as on here. Uh, I did an entire video explaining the Ottoman harem structure because it's really fascinating. It's a really old video, so please don't judge it too harshly. Oh, yeah, no. If you're if you're looking at this, like, I don't know, two years from the future and now, and by then maybe I have, like, an editor and all this fancy stuff, it's not that. It's just me in a room basically over a slideshow explaining how this stuff all works. <laughs> but it's me, all right? So that, that's pretty much how it works, yeah. <laughs> so... As I said, after his succession, Kulsum came back as the Valade Sultan, the mother of the Sultan, the most powerful position, who rules the harem, and she was also regent for her son because Murad IV was 11 years old. <laughs> However, when this happened, Ibrahim, his little brother, was confined in the Kafes, which is a secluded part of the royal harem that is under surveillance and is isolated from the outside world where possible successors to the throne were kept. His other brothers were then executed one by one on the order of the Sultan. And this, this is where I'm going to need to interject a little bit of a tangent of mine, so I apologize. Because I've made videos and talked about this stuff here before, because sometimes people think that the kafes, which means cage, literally meant that the brothers were locked inside like a dungeon or something. But no, it was not that bad. Like, think of this as a gilded prison complex. Like a maximum security prison that was also a five-star hotel. So so basically it worked like this. Until 1603, it was very common, like it was the norm for when a son of a sultan would inherit the throne, 
for the Ottoman Empire that he would just kill all of his brothers, like all of them, even down to the babies, just murder them. Why did they have a bunch of like kids, like sons, if one was just going to murder all of the others? Well, part of it was to make sure, A, in the first place, that there was an heir, that they had kids to choose from, and then the choice, like that's, they didn't necessarily, it, it wasn't primogeniture. Like, it wasn't Europe, right? Like, you, it didn't d just go to the eldest son. Typically, it might, yeah, but technically speaking, you would have the choice to choose whoever you wanted so that if something was, you know, if you had a, a third-born child that was a genius and you're like, yeah, th this is the one that I want to rule the empire. This is, this is the good one. Then that's who you could go with versus oh, hey, it looks like the firstborn son is quite literally mentally retarded and simultaneously prone to very violent outrages and just murdering servants. Nice. So, I mean, it, it's got its ups and downs, <laughs> to say the least. So, the primary reason why they did that, though, was in order to make sure that there wasn't going to be a civil war. Because killing your brothers in this method meant that if anything happened to you like there wasn't going to be anyone that took over the throne unless you had children so it was dangerous because if you kicked the bucket and you had already murdered all of your brothers and then literally just a year later before you managed to have any kids and you died that's it the dynasty was over and that almost happened a few times in ottoman history and that was like a really big deal but if you didn't kill your brothers right then what would you do with them so what they would basically do in the old education system is that it was common for a sultan's son to go off and essentially become the governor or administer or admi administer administrator that's the term that i'm looking for the, the, so they'd become like an administrator for a province along with his tutor and mother and while he was there they would develop independently it's kind of like becoming the ruler before you're actually the ruler so they wanted the sons to have experience so if a sultan had like 10 sons each son would become the leader of their own little province effectively but they were a governor not the lord right so what would happen is that when the sultan would die this would result in essentially a scramble for the throne so all those kids who are governing, governing their little provinces would then go, oh, there's no one on the throne. My turn. And then they would all basically rush to the palace with their little armies, fight it out, and whoever wins takes over the throne. And typically speaking, the first person to th then physically sit, I mean physically sit on the throne, is usually the one that won. Like, And so that meant that the heir, the presumptive heir, was usually not sent out to the far provinces. They were usually kept something very close or even in the palace itself so that when the Ottoman sultan would die, there was someone to just jump in. You know, just do it. Just, like, take over. That, that's pretty much how that would work. Hey everyone, Sakuya here, and before we get back to the show, I would just like to thank today's sponsor, eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. 
Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. But naturally, as you can imagine, is that this scenario meant that every time the Sultan died or was close to death, the entire country broke out in civil war. Because we're not just talking one or two or three brothers, right? We're talking about a Fortnite battle royale, but with armies. That's beautiful. Yeah, <laughs> that's pretty much how it was structured. Um, okay, because imagine this. Imagine a situation in which there was a sultan, right? And he fathered 20 or 30 or 40. Just keep on going. He fathered a lot of kids. And all of them were being raised in the imperial harem within the course of a few years of each other. Without having discipline, you can imagine how absolutely insane that was going to be. Because not only were these children raised to follow a very strict protocol, they were also taught to not raise their voice. They were taught music, mathematics, religion, like everything. It was, it was very, they were very keen on this. So each one was raised with the idea that this is a potential ruler. And so these young princes or Cesares, Cesares? Sizzides. I have no idea how I'm going to pronounce that word. Sizzides, uh, I'm going to say. But they would start life with a wet nurse, nursemaids, this sort of thing. And unless the mother remained a favorite with the sultan, they would have been assigned quarters in the old palace. And upon reaching the age of eight, the princes would be moved from the harem to a secluded apartment where eunuchs guarded the doors at all hours of the day, essentially restricting the admittance of outsiders with only tutors being able to enter most of the time. So that's how the cafes or the cafes would function, right? So you got these kids that are raised in the harem. They're having this wonderful, awesome life. And then at eight years old, they're shut away. Like not, not puberty, right? Not at the age of 12 or 13. At the age of eight, they are then locked inside of their own private apartment. And that's just where they would stay for the rest of their life. And when I describe this as an apartment, I want you to imag imagine something equivalent to a luxurious New York or Las Vegas or somewhere high-rise, right? Except there's no windows. There's nothing to really see outside because you can't have the world see you. You're, you're hidden from all of it. You are, you are in a position where you are given the best tutors, the best food, the best everything, but not entertainment, not anything except maybe some books, and you are locked away there for your potentially entire life. Now, whether that life is going to be one year or whether it is 30 years, you're there forever. I do it. It sounds relaxing. <laughs> okay. You might actually, but... um. This, it's not exactly conducive to a healthy mind. I'm just telling you that it's not. Okay, so Ahmed I, Murad and Ibrahim's father, was the first sultan to break with the practice of royal fratricide, which, again, that's literally just the standard thing. Uh, the, you know, your kid takes the throne after you kick the bucket, and then he's like, oh, yay, I love this. I'm in charge. Time to murder all of my brothers. And that's just what they did. But Ahmed had grown up with a 
mentally handicapped brother named Mustafa, the, the, the guy who had the throne before. Remember the guy who got dethroned? And Ahmed was a sultan that was famous for his compassion. And so when it came time to have his, you know, not all there in the head brother. I say that as a literal sound effect because strangulation was usually the way that they did that. So when it came time to, he just couldn't do it. He just couldn't. Instead, Mustafa was sent to live with their grandmother in a single room of the harem known as the Kafes, like what we were talking about, the golden cage. And it became a special room. It had windows only on the second floor, and it had a slot that you would just deliver food into. And so when Ahmed died of typhoid fever, Mustafa, despite being mentally handicapped, or probably, I guess, because of it, because they thought that he wouldn't be a threat or an issue, they installed him to the throne. And another first, it was the first time in the Osman, which that is the royal family of the Ottomans, so the first time in the Osman house history that an Osman brother was made sultan instead of a son. However, his rule didn't last long. A few months after he took charge, he was, you know, on a hunting trip. And then he came back and found that he had been deposed by his nephew, Osman II. And then Mustafa was sent back into the cage. But then the young Osman II, as we were talking about earlier, he got deposed and killed. So then Mustafa was taken back out of the cage and then put on the throne again. Only for him to get dethroned again by his nephew, Murad IV. How is this country not in shambles? Yeah, God, that's pretty you much... You can't have that much, like, change in government without people being like, hey... Trust me when I say what? at this point, it's this point of stability that they talk about for the creation of the Kafis, but also, this is around the time... Th th we're past the Ottoman Golden Age, right? Like, this is going into... this is Well, this is actually, I guess, during still kind of it. The, so, the, going into the 1600s, the Ottomans had basically peaked, and they would, they they weren't exactly going to do the best in the next couple centuries. So they decided to burn it all down. Ah, uh, no, that burning and a lot of other stuff here comes later. Yeah, that, that that's what happens there. So Mustafa was happy. He never actually wanted to be the Sultan. It seems he just he didn't understand what was going on because again he wasn't really all that there, and so they he got sent back into the cafes. Before he was eventually at the age of like 47 or 48, either one of two things happened. Either they went in there and like, okay, we can't risk this guy anymore, and they strangled him, or he died of epilepsy. We really don't know. That's just the thing. Considering Murad the Fourth and how many people he killed, I, I'm and I'm thinking it might be the execution. Maybe. Yeah, that that that's pretty much it. So. Murad IV was determined to not make the same mistake that his father had with Mustafa. Murad ordered upon his death that his brother Ibrahim, who again was showing those kind of similar things, but this was more like paranoia and a lot of other things rather than being actually mentally handicapped. Um, he ordered that he be killed on his deathbed. And the funny thing is, if this had happened, like if he, if this actually had happened, the Osman line would have been done. He like Murad the Fourth, like he didn't have any sons for it there. At least not that I remember for it here. Like this would have been the end of the line. There was no one left, and so that didn't happen because it was Ibrahim and Murad's mother, Kolsim Sultan, who intervened 
and didn't let her son be executed. So she denied it. She saved his life. And then when Murad finally gave his last breath, only five days later, Ibrahim took the throne. But it wasn't that simple. Because he didn't just take the throne. He had to be forced onto it in the first place. So Ibrahim had spent years dreaming of the world beyond the cage. But when his chance at freedom finally came, he didn't want to go. He blocked the door and wouldn't let anyone inside. He was kind of crazy, but he wasn't stupid. So he had watched each of his brothers leave the cage, never return, just <laughs> executed. And he wasn't about to make the same mistake. So he thought that this whole thing was an elaborate trick by Murad to test him to see if he would come out and proclaim himself sultan. Because if he did, then Murad would just kill him. So he was like, no, 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 no. Long live the sultan. We don't need me. I know. I can't do No, no. Basically stuff like that. He like, literally just refused. He wouldn't go out there thinking it was all a test. So there was the only way that they could get him out was that Kulsim Sultan, so the, his mother, ordered that Murad's remains be brought to the cafes, like his dead body, to drag it in front of him and to prove that he was really dead in order for Ibrahim to leave. Ibrahim saw the body... But he still didn't refuse. The, like, he thought it was all pretend. He thought that it was, again, him just trying to chick him. That, like, trick, trick him. Trick, trick him. That's the word. He thought it was just all an elaborate trick. And even once he believed it, because he went over and, he, like, he kicked the body and everything to, like, really test it, he was still terrified. So, he refused the throne at first, thinking, like, okay, well, I still don't want to do this because there's still probably something dangerous. But the, the gist was, take the throne or be executed. And that was, that was pretty much the, <laughs> it's such a weird dilemma to be faced with. You get in charge or else we're going to kill you. That's, that's pretty much how it had to go down, right? So his mother reminded him that he would likely face execution if he refused the throne. And at last, between that threat, his brother's body, and being offered food to come out, he opened the door and he stepped out of the coffees for the first time in 16 years. Okay. All of this, and you're like, oh, well, how is he mad? I don't know, man. I don't know. It's just, I can't put my finger on it. We might need to call in a therapist. Trust me, you haven't seen anything yet. Dude, he was locked in that cage, watched all his brothers get murdered. Yeah, he's, he's going to be nuts. There's absolutely no way he could come out of that with any sort of sanity intact. Well, I mean, his first action upon entering was to dance around the harem, shrieking like, the butcher of the empire is dead. Like, literally just dancing around through the halls, just screaming that. Did those women have to sleep with him after that? Oh, yeah. Unfortunately. Well, not necessarily those, but a lot of others, and willing and otherwise. Ooh. Oh, yeah, no, we're going to get into some stories here. I'm going to leave out the worst of the details from things, but, um, yeah, they, they, they're, we're, they, there's some spicy moments. So... Believe it or not, despite me saying that, despite me doing all of this buildup, the first, like, few years or the beginning of his reign actually wasn't that bad. Like, the first few months going into the first year. Like, he was actually pretty decent. His brother's old grand vizier was a man by the name of Kara Mustafa Pasha, and he was a very capable administrator. And he kept things running pretty smoothly during the transition from one sultan to another. Now, 
all that anyone could do was wait and see what kind of sultan he would be. And in the beginning, they were pretty surprised. Because you really don't know if a person has been locked up in their entire life, what they're going to be like when they actually, you know, leave. But at first, he was pretty well adjusted. So he communicated with all the advisors. He was going around and putting on disguises and going around through town to try and see what things were like in order to meet people and see, you know, what was going on. And then he just was asking questions and trying to figure out stuff about the Empire so that he knew what it was that he was doing. It was decent, all things considered. But there were a number of things that were wrong that became very apparent pretty quickly. He tried to rule. He did. But he had a plethora of ailments that really haunted him. He suffered from, again, excruciating headaches. He had attacks of physical weakness. Like, most modern scholars agree that the trauma of his upbringing really caused these symptoms, and as the years began to pass, the good Sultan Ibrahim grew more and more and more unstable and this instability led to a realization for his mother his mother basically went okay well ibrahim who seems kind of crazy he is the last male osman alive there are no more that means that we need to get as many children as quickly as possible we got we got to start pumping out babies like we we, we got to get them we got to go so she volunteered herself for the terrible, terrible position of running the Empire while he was sent back into the harem that he just got out of to go make babies. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. So he just had to go bang people? Yeah, that, that was his job. Too bad. Like, honestly, how do I sign up for that job? <laughs> Specifically, just that job. It's the only form of labor i will be willing to do <laughs> well considering what was going on in the harem though you might actually be bought and put into that now there's a whole thing for it here that would be describing it but again i cover yeah, a lot of that in my youtube the girl ew <laughs> ew it's <laughs> oh, a fair point it's a fair point it's a fair point so he got sent back in because after all after all the ottomans the, the empire they needed heirs in order to carry on the line and so very soon after, Ibram had fathered three sons by three different concubines, but he didn't stop there. Like, it turns out, once he started, he had an insatiable appetite for women. And his mother really struggled to keep him occupied, though, I mean, I'll give her the benefit of the doubt. She really tried. Like, she would personally, this is the mother of the sultan, right? She would personally go down into the market to make sure that her son had a constant stream of slave girls to keep him busy. So she knew what kind of women that he liked and would handpick the ones that she thought would keep his attention. <laughs> Boy. A good mom. Yeah, but he needed a lot of attention. Like, a lot. Are you going to elaborate? Oh, yeah. See, Ibrahim was a predator. Like, in every sense of the word. 
he would keep his harem filled with hundreds of concubines and slaves who had no choice in the matter. But despite that, more twisted was that Ibrahim actually preferred girls that he couldn't have and he wanted them to resist him. His girls that he wanted weren't, like, or sorry, his girls that he had were not in positions to refuse him. So I mean, it's this really weird dynamic of we got this boy who grew up in ca captivity who, ironically enough, really liked then holding people captive. Like it created this really twisted mentality. He did not take kindly to the word no. That was not a thing. So Ibrahim always got what he wanted. And so according to one of the stories, he became infatuated with the Grand Mufti's beautiful daughter. When he asked the religious leader for her hand in marriage, the Mufti knew what kind of person that he was, and he heard all these stories about what was happening in the harem and didn't want his daughter to have any part of that. So he refused. He refused the proposal to protect his daughter, but he didn't understand, I guess, at that point for how cruel Ibrahim could be. Because Ibrahim did not take that rejection well. Enraged, he ordered his guards to follow the Grand Mufti's daughter. They kidnapped her, dragged her back to the harem, where he had his way with her for days before just sending her back to the father. And then just carried on with his usual concubines. He didn't even keep her past that point. That's that's the most insulting and terrible part about our, our, anything for that, is that she was never made a wife for anything. Which, I say that, it's going to sound weird that I'm trying to say, oh, it, it, it could have been better. But no, it quite literally could have because this happened to so many people, but they were still given power and prestige and all these other things. She was just assaulted. And that that's that's the limit of that. And so as long as Ibrahim was distracted with his harem, his mother could essentially rule the empire in his stead. So she was letting him do pretty much anything that he wanted to in order to keep him occupied. Colson, like, she also knew that he actually, despite all this, he had trouble at times getting it up because the man really liked to eat and indulge himself. He got large. And if you know one of the things that can happen with severe weight gain is that also it can create sexual impotence issues. So you combine that with his already severe mental instability. And he, despite his wants and needs, he sometimes had a lot of difficulty performing. So she spent all this money getting the best aphrodisiacs that money could buy and just supplied those to her son. Like she basically became her son's pimp. It's, it's a thing. So according to one report, Ibrahim frequently liked to assemble all of the virgins in his harem. He would then order all of them to strip, and then he would run among them, neighing like a horse, ravishing one after the other. Even more deranged, he would then order them to kick and struggle against him because he wanted them to fight back. Like, that, that's just what he wanted. It was not a good place. And the, the weirder part about all of it from anything is that like he would go after all of these people but he had a very specific type the bigger the woman the better so he would send men around to find the fattest women in the empire to bring back to the capital and join his harem because it, according to one source he once saw a cow in the field and the beast or rather he saw its rear so its reproductive parts sent him into a kind of frenzy 
And so he had a, oh God, how am I going to describe this? Stop. Maybe you yeah. just don't describe it. No, no, we're going to happen. A anatomically correct model cast of it in gold. And then he sent that around the empire, essentially demanding that anyone who knew of a woman who looked like that, who looked like a cow's butt, uh, send them, send them my way. Yeah, send them to Istanbul. Yeah, that that's that's what he wanted. So this man would have been a menace on the internet. Oh my god. Yeah, no, he absolutely would have. He definitely would have, right? And and shamelessly th- asking your sub. Oh my god. Yeah. That's something. But see, I, I respect it. The whole part about that story, though, that weirds me out is the way that he did it, right? He made a cast out of metal, specifically gold, and he sent that around the empire. Like, okay. What is gold? Why gold? That's so stupidly Maybe expensive. To show how much he valued it? Yeah, but you could get so much more detail out of a painting. Right? Like a portrait, like a picture. You could he could have drawn a picture and have it sent because that would be easier, cheaper, more detailed. Like gold? Really? But how do you think these servants went about it? Like, hey, the the king wants us to um find someone who looks like this. And then just holds up a crudely drawn picture of a cow. Yeah, like how <laughs> how do you think that would have gone for them? Like Uh, he told them to move it. No, we're cutting that out. No, we're not. We literally are. No, we're not. We're keeping that in. So there's the the thing. Like, I'm talking about this stuff with gold. The man was terrible with finances because his harem was really the only thing that he cared about. Like, okay, you know how um, you know how you have those rappers in the modern day that all they're singing about is going to the club, like driving super expensive cars all the jewelry, like everything, and then just spending money on girls. Like, right? Like, that that's all it is. It's literally drugs, sex, and money. Yeah. That, that's what it's about. Okay, so he pretty much lived that life. That that was, that's all that he had, except it was way more focused on the women. And he wasn't, oh God, I can't believe I'm using this term for it here. He wasn't an alpha male. He was a simp. He he was a guy that would just lavish all of these gifts, but it wasn't like money that he had. It was like a guy on the internet who has a Twitch girl that he's obsessed with and basically drains his bank account and goes into debt to support her. There is nothing wrong with simping. First <laughs> of all, first of all, what, who am I to tell someone what to spend their money on? Okay. And also, if a girl is pretty, she deserves it. You shower her in those presents. Yeah, but at the cost of everyone else's life. Okay, let me let me explain what I'm talking about, right? So, during his reign, the Imperial harem reached just stupid levels of luxury. He would buy all the finest perfumes, the textiles, like the clothing, jewelry for his concubines, everything. Like, if you were a concubine of his, yeah, it was a dangerous position. But you got a lot of jewelry. You got a lot of, like, really nice stuff. And he really loved furs. As in, like, he really, really loved fur. Like, his his preferred sexual thing was on furs. 
was he a furry? Because yeah. you you mentioned the cow, and now you're mentioning the furs. And I don't know, maybe he was like the and like a furry. Maybe he was into that. Mookin. Okay. First of all, no. <laughs> Second of all, did he ever have kids? Like yeah, he, he did. He got sent away to have kids, and then he just started being. Yeah, remember? No, we started it from the very beginning. He had three sons. Like he he at least had three sons. Like he very well, quickly maybe. had those. Well, he more than likely had more. Like he definitely had more. I'm sure. Also, but were these sons gonna get locked away? Well, there's some other stuff that happens in here, and it's a little detail I'll show there at the end of one of the things that happened. Like there, there's just some wild stuff. So his obsession with fur, because he he would just deck out all these rooms. Like he would literally cover them in fur, and that kind of. Like, do you have any idea how expensive that would be? It sounds crazy. I mean, I have to admit, if you deck out an entire room in like fur. So in France, he had a nickname. Do you want to guess what it was? I I don't know. Le Fou de la Forest. Or Furious? Okay. Translate this for me, Gabby, because you speak French. The Fool of Furs. I'm not translating that. Sorry. Le Fou de Forest. I don't know what I'm doing there. But anyway, he only wanted to sleep with women on extravagant furs. And he even had an entire room lined with lynx and sable just because he could. Like, he wore the finest clothes money could buy. He drenched his entire body in perfume. Like, god damn, he would have probably stank when, when you just met him in the first place. Like, he, he was not thrifty. He wasn't frugal. They, these are impossible ways to describe him. And so, how are you going to pay for that, right? Like, this seems ridiculously expensive, even for a ruler. And it was. So in order to pay for things, he would raise taxes. And then in addition to that, Government positions, just like, you know, to be a, a certain, have a certain government job out in the provinces, they would basically sell it off to the highest bidder. So they would accept bribes in different positions where these really incompetent people would come in, but they had the money to buy up the position. So they would do that. So it wasn't good, but we're going to come back to that. So anyway, the cow woman, because we got, we got a little bit off topic there talking about furs and cows and furries and Mookin and all this. This is, this is perhaps the most famous story for him. So it began with a woman called Sivikar Sultan. And this, this woman was his dream. He, she was exactly what he was looking for. The woman was Armenian, and she was 330 pounds. Which, mind you, that's big now. To be that size back in, like, the 17th century, when people were much smaller, that is... That is huge, right? That's like when you see the stories of, like, the men in those armies, where, remember the Irish guy we talked about with the Postum Giants, who he was seven feet tall? Yeah. And that's at a time when people are like five foot two. What was the average height in this time? Uh, but uh, it's the 1600s here. So at this time for here, the average height for a man would probably be around five foot four, five foot five, five foot six. That's pretty impressive. So that's what it would be. So mind you, this is a woman, so she's even smaller. But then at the same time, she's 330 pounds. And that was that. That was his woman. That's what he wanted. Oh, my God. I know who she was. She was the one that made him paranoid. Yes. Yes. I remember telling you about this here before. Yes. So her nickname, her like her literal name for it here 
with Sugar Cube. That's kind of cute. Yeah, yeah. And so she was this one-time slave of Kolsim Sultan. So she was the slave of his mother, and she, God, she was everything that he wanted. And because she was the ideal thing that he ascribed to, she skyrocketed all the way to the top of the harem hierarchy and had Ibrahim just wrapped around her finger, which made her feel very secure, but she left that power go way to her head. The most infamous story that came from this is that she allegedly told him that one of his concubines had been compromised by an outsider. Essentially what that means is that one of his concubines slept with someone else. And that's that's a big no-no. That's a, that's a really big no-no. That's bad. So he, being the paranoid lunatic that he was, just went into a massive rage. He raged for days, demanding information on the mysterious traitor. He even sent in the chief black eunuch, which for those who, if you haven't listened to my video, you don't know what that is. The eunuchs that served in the harem were black and they had all of their genitalia cut off. Like they were completely, there was, there was nothing. It was just, there was a hole. They're completely removed. And so they were the ones that guarded the harem. And so they were responsible for managing things in the harem. And he had the chief one torture a bunch of these girls to just try and figure out who had betrayed him, like what was going on. But of course, no one had betrayed him. Nothing happened. This was all a paranoid rumor. So because no one came forward, he then ordered that his entire harem be tied up in weighted sacks and thrown overboard into the Bosphorus. That was around, that was over 200, almost 300 women that he drowned like cats, all over a claim of treachery that was never able to be proven. Like, that is wild. I just, what was her reasoning? Jealousy, or here's the thing, here's the thing. She was secure in her power base, but there, there's still 200-something women that are competing with you. Uh, get rid of rivals. Because if she gets rid of them, then there's no risk that another one is going to come up and take her place as favorite. She's, she's the one in charge. I mean, it makes sense. It's just kind of... That is so many people to murder. Yeah. Nothing. Yeah. A few survived. We know at least one survived because she comes back. And it's it's a big deal for it here later. Um, so his mother is watching this. And she is not happy. She does not like how much control this woman has over her son. Because that's her job. She's the one that's supposed to be controlling him. Not, not this woman. I'm Jane Perlez longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off. An eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. 
So she invites Sugar Cube to go to a private dinner, effectively, with her. And while there, either has her poisoned or strangled. We don't know which, but in the end, she died. And Ibrahim just goes mad with grief. He, I, I more mad. Not his sugar cube, come on. Yeah, he, she, she, he was inconsolable. It just terrible. And she told him that she had suddenly fallen victim to a mysterious sickness, and there was no way that she would, could be saved. He and, believed her. Well, I mean, yeah, the dude was dependent on his mom. Like, the thing, he was a major mama's boy, despite all that for here. Because, like, she was literally responsible for everything for him. She ran the Empire. She had saved his life multiple times when he was younger. He, she, she was everything to him as well. It's kind of sweet, but so sad. Oh, yeah, no, there's some major Stockholm Syndrome from a lot of the stuff that they, they got going on here. But all of this would change when war would come. So four years into his reign, in 1644... Maltese Corsairs, which the Knights of Malta, they effectively acted as, it was like Christian pirates that would attack Ottoman shipping. So they were knights that would, you know, harass Muslim shipping. That's what they would do. They had captured several high-ranking Muslim pilgrims who were on their way to Mecca. And since the pirates docked out of Crete, Ibrahim's more warmongering advisors convinced him to invade the island. So they began a disastrous war with another powerful Mediterranean power, Venice. Thus far, the Ottomans had really put up with Ibrahim's eccentric behaviors because he wasn't really affecting most people's lives that much. Like, yeah, he was the ruler, he was in charge, but he didn't really do much. But the war with Venice, that changed everything. Because, see, Venice was a major naval power, like major naval power. Not as powerful as they were in the previous centuries, but they were still really strong. So they had blockaded the Dardanelles, like the, uh, the, 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 which is this strait here, that they cut off Istanbul's only connection to the Mediterranean. And that caused massive shortages of food and supplies. And so what was Ibrahim up to while his people starved? Like, you know this guy, Gabby, what was he doing? So his people are starving, they're at war, what is Ibrahim going to do? Hang out with his harem. Hang out with, there you go, you're getting the idea. So not only was he hanging out with his harem, but he levied brutal taxes in order to pay for all this. Because this whole time that that whole fur thing and perfume and jewels and all that other crap was happening, they were at war. I just need to know. He was only ruling for like four years at this eight. point. Like, well, yeah. He ruled for eight, but this was the fourth year in. That's insane because it feels like it's been decades. I know. Just, this entire saga feels like it spans 30 years. Yep. So the people suffered, and it caused a lot of problems here. Starting around 1647, after three miserable years of conflict, there was a plot that was hatched that essentially called for his death. The latest Grand Vizier teamed up with Kolsim Sultan, like his mother, to depose Ibrahim and just fix everything. Finally, someone was going to do something about Ibrahim. And let me ask you something. How do you think it went? Poorly. Yep, it didn't work. Of course it wouldn't work. So the plot failed. Uh, they Somehow it got figured out. And then Ibrahim had the Grand Vizier executed. And then he exiled his mother. So now, his mother was gone, no longer able to actually run the empire as she had been. 
which she was a far more effective. Yeah, yeah, she was power hungry and all this, but she was still way more effective than he was. And he took direct control. Or rather, he didn't necessarily take direct control himself. He took control of choosing the people who would be in control, if that makes sense. So what he did is he appointed a new Grand Vizier who was horribly corrupt, but this guy would just take care of everything himself and he wouldn't have to worry. And then as long as Ibrahim got to play in his harem with all of his sex slaves, there was, there was not going to be any problem. So that goes on for another year. Just another year of misery. And a year later, things finally come to a head. Like, you can't bankrupt an entire empire and run it to the ground without someone trying to stop you. The Janissaries, the guys that we talked about before, the Ottomans' elite infantry, they revolted. Which, they probably revolted in this case because usually it stems from money. So I don't think we know the exact reason for it, but they probably didn't get paid because the dude was spending all of the money for the army <laughs> buying his latest uh, chubby chaser dream some more jewelry to deck on her body. So that's that's probably where that came from. So the Janissaries revolt. They He has no more people that are supporting him. And the first thing that happens is that that new Grand Vizier that he had appointed a year earlier, he's gone. So the people of Istanbul had grown long fed up with this mad sultan. And so on August 8th, an angry mob got their hands on the Grand Vizier who was thrown out into the streets. And it was not pretty. This mob tore him physically to shreds, which earned him the moniker of the Hezarpare, or Thousand Pieces. Like, they literally tossed the senior official into the street, and then a mob of people just ripped his body apart into a thousand different pieces. And next, the mob was going to come for Ibrahim. And so what do you think happened next? Like, how, how does this guy take it? Is Ibrahim going to take charge? Is he going to try and fix things? No, is he going to... he's going to be right where he usually is. Yup. So with the walls closing around him, Ibrahim ran, and this is the most ironic part, he ran straight back into his mother's arms. He exiled her before, rather than executing her, but she was the only person who ever really looked out for him. So he begged his mother to, like, to protect him and to fix things. And so Coulson basically gave him an ultimatum. Abdicate or face the mob. Which, he didn't really have a choice. So the na that same day, guards seized Ibrahim and then imprisoned him inside the palace. Once again, he was inside a cage. But this time, at least he was alive. For now. All he could do was sit there and wait for his fate and see what would happen. His one solace was knowing that his mother, the woman who had done everything for him, was out there working to protect him. But that is just the thing. Kulsum Sultan had sheltered her son for his entire life, even when he betrayed her. This time, it was over. She saw what her son had become, and she knew that he had to go. So a coalition was created among the higher ranks within the Ottoman court that deposed Ibrahim the Mad and made his six-year-old son, again, six-year-old son, Mehmet, the new sultan. But no one really felt safe with Ibrahim still being alive, even though now he was locked inside the cage once again. 
So the new Grand Vizier sought out a fatwa from the religious leaders to sanction his execution. And so they got a simple reply. If there are two caliphs, kill one. And the only person left who could have stopped it at this point was Qasim Sultan, the woman who was in charge again. But this time, she didn't stop it. Ibrahim had beaten all of the motherly love out of Colson. She consented to the execution, and the Grand Vizier quickly sent out two executioners. And actually, one of the ironic things from this is that one of these guys was the same executioner that Ibrahim himself had commanded for years to kill all of his enemies. And now that executioner was coming right back towards him. There was no ceremony. There was no fanfare, no big crowd. Officials just watched from an overlooking window as the executioners went into his cell and then strangled him to death. But before they had finished, he managed to croak out a single final plea begging for mercy. His final words were, according to the accounts of the time, is there no one among those here who have eaten my bread who will take pity and protect me? These cruel men have come to kill me. Mercy, mercy. But, as you have probably heard from our story, he had exhausted any kind of mercy many, many years prior. No one had any pity left for the sultan. And so, Ibrahim the Mad passed away. And that is the end of that story. Now, I'm going to say this at the end. Some people really claim that he probably was not as mad as what the stories make him out to be. Because there's a lot of this stuff. Like, this is pretty damn wild. The rumors about his insanity could have been spread by his assassins in, in an attempt to justify them. But we maybe some of the things that he did was like that. But we also know that the dude was crazy. Like, it is more than likely that he was very eccentric. He was a liability. He did have these health issues. He was probably mentally not all there, and it created some serious problems. Because his earlier stuff that he had done in terms of the violence and the debauchery and everything, like, it indicated some, at least some kind of personality disorder. And he spent his years locked away in a cage before that. And you see a number of sultans who have somewhat similar, though not nearly as bad, I would argue, rules that happened at that time. But either way, he spent his whole life in a cage until he came out of that cage. And growing up in the fear of death would surely have warped his personality. But honestly, at this point, we don't know. I have one question. So if his six-year-old son became the leader... Then who was the Mamafi leader? Oh God, no, that's a whole other thing. Oh, I forgot, I forgot. That's the the who detail that I was going to talk Sultana? about. Okay, that was Turin. Turin, I believe, is the name for it here. So you had this Russian woman, and there's another story. I didn't talk about it. I didn't talk about it, and I'm not. I don't have any of the notes on here because I forgot to write it down. But I'm just going to go and tell you this. So one of his favorite wives before, I think it was before the the before Sugar Cube came into the picture, was this Russian woman that was his favorite at the time. And she had a kid. She had a son. And it was Mehmet, right? And at the time, the child, when it was born, was not the healthiest. Like, Mehmet was kind of sickly as a newborn. And one of the servants that had just come into the palace to serve 
the court before she be- became that she was actually already pregnant which that that's a rare thing that is very rare to happen but what happened is that she was made a wet nurse for you know the actual ottoman kids ought to be kids yeah before the royal family basically they did that so she became a wet nurse and she had her kid and this kid of hers also grew up in the palace and Ibrahim loved this kid. Like, it wasn't his kid, but this was this really strong, healthy baby boy, and he loved it. He doted on it, and it was a common servant's child, not related to him at all. So it was this really kind of, I guess you could call a cute moment for it here, where he just loved this kid. And Turin didn't like that because he ignored her and ignored her son. That was actually his kid because the kid was a little bit sickly. So he didn't give two shits about it. And so when Turin confronted him about this, he flew into a rage, grabbed the kid from her. And mind you, I think the kid was only like, like Mehmed was one or two years old at the time for it here. And just chucked him into the pool. Mind you, this, this is a baby. It can't swim. It can't do anything for it here. So he tried to kill the kid. But it didn't die, right? No, a servant immediately jumped in and saved it. Okay, good. Because babies have that reflex where, like, they hold their breath when their face touches water. So, like, obviously it wouldn't die, but someone had to save it, you know? Yes. So they did that. And Turin would remember this. Remember when I said that all of those uh, concubines got tied into sacks and were then thrown into the Bosphorus so they were drowned? Very few of them survived because some of the sacks were not properly sealed and Turin was one of them. And she would come back for revenge. So Kosim Sultan, the woman that had was the 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 mother of Ibrahim, had she she was no longer a friend. She was not an ally. And so only a year or so after Ibrahim's death, Mehmed was on the throne, and the new Valide Sultan, Turin, then had Kosim Sultan executed. So she only lived another year or so past her son. Huh. Yeah. Maybe she shouldn't have let her son get executed. Ottoman, in general, political power struggles are... Do you have any idea how much content that that could make out of all these varying things? No. I have no clue. There's a lot. There's a lot. I'm just in awe at just how... This was only eight years. Yeah. Yeah. But hey, it doesn't really take all that much to ruin people. You've seen how people can change over the span of just one year. Yeah, that's true. And when they got all the money and the mental illness, things kind of hit the fan. But anyway, that is the end of today's story. Thank you for everyone who has, well, been listening for this entire time. This was funny, but also horrible at the same time, but that's yeah, pretty like, much I what happens. I know. Like, on one hand, yay, funny, chaotic. On the other hand, horrendous, horrifying, awful. Yep, yep. Maybe I need to go back to another one, a a simple one for it here. Like, I did, the exclusive that we've done on Patreon was tomatoes that we've done that. So maybe I should do something real simple for it here. How about pineapples? Because pineapples have a really fun history for it here. you need to do something lighthearted because you covered the Dakota War, the last exclusive, and I think we were all depressed. I yeah. didn't talk that entire podcast episode. 
I was not upset. We need to cover some more lighthearted and just fun things in terms of the stories. If you all have suggestions, then please do, like, put messages into Discord. Go onto our TikTok channel uh, or onto YouTube and just tell us what it is that you want to hear, like, the different stories. And if we like your suggestion, then we could go ahead and add that in for future. Thank you for listening. And I hope you have a good rest of your week and a lifetime. My hopes. Goodbye. What do you get when you take two childhood friends with a passion for unexplored history and a whole lot of booze? You get us, Queen's Podcast. And here at Queen's, we are spilling the tea on all kinds of women from history. From New Orleans voodoo queen, Marie Laveau, to Marie Antoinette, and everything in between. Each queen is paired with a cocktail recipe that will totally get you in the mood to hear the fun, dramatic, and juicy stories of fascinating women from history. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Cheers! Cheers!